Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Love Capades podcast. We left off with Michelle's heart broken by Drake the Flake. But as you are about to find out, she picked up the pieces and moved on nicely. You can't keep a good girl down for long. This next chapter is called... Sowing the Oats of Freedom. Once leaving Drake's house, it never felt like mine. I traded my Mondo condo in for a fetching cottage on the same street in which I had grown up, Lemon Avenue in Menlo Park. It was a small abode with good bones and funky finishes on a prime lot. Over many years, I transformed it into an enchanting home and garden. It was my safe haven, my woman cave, my dream asyl. Once ensconced in my new home, it's easy to guess where I might want to go to lick my breakup wounds. You've got it, Italy. I turned to the Stanford Alumni Travel Program, and with uncanny luck, they were sponsoring a trip to Florence shortly after I tucked myself into my sweet bungalow. Two weeks in a villa close to downtown Firenze with the usual collection of interesting folks who go on these excursions. There's just no doubt that I've had past lifetimes in Italy because I have always felt happy and at home there, and this was no exception. Apart from all the nifty activities arranged for our group, serendipitously, there was also a rather intriguing romantic opportunity that popped up. I swoon as I recall how it unfolded. One night, we were to have a wine lecture in the villa's elegant book-lined library. A cluster of long tables was arranged in a U-shape to accommodate the group, and at the head was to be our lecturer. He glided into the room and was escorted to center stage. On either side of him, at that head table, were seated two women, me, and as it turned out, my rival, Joan, who was married to the on-site program director. She'd placed herself there, knowing the presenter was a bit of a local celebrity, and drop-dead gorgeous. His family had originally migrated from Switzerland during World War II and restarted their wine business in Tuscany. In truth, he was a baron and looked as if he'd come directly from central casting. Tall, lithe, tanned, with light brown hair the color of fertile earth and blue eyes that rivaled those of Paul Newman. In fact, he was wearing a blue silk shirt the same color as Newman's silk pajamas in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is the first time I creamed my panties. Does that give you a picture? His name was Armando Durham, 
And just like the time I watched that last scene in Cat, my girly parts got wet just sitting there. I didn't learn much about wine that night because I was engaged in a flirtation duel of the first order. Joan had studied ballet with Balanchine. So was a tall, graceful swan who wore a bit too much eye makeup. And here I was with my blonde locks and ample curves, divorce wounded and not totally sure of myself. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. So fate arranged that I was the chosen one. As Armando finished his talk and was readying to leave, he turned to me and sotto voce invited me to spend the weekend with him on his sailboat moored near Luca. I must confess to you now of my incredible stupidity. Rather than taking him up on his erotic offer, I told him I had to accompany the group to Siena that weekend for a special program. Was I out of my mind? I believe everyone should have a certain number of do-overs in life, don't you? <laughs> this would definitely be at the top of the list. Luckily, my idiotic denial wasn't the end of the story. Phew. After the Santa trip on the Monday, I went downtown on my own to find Armando's Enoteca, which means wine shop in Italian. It was located on the same piazza where Michelangelo's famous David is housed, in the Galleria dell'Accademia. Armando was engaged in business with some foreign customers, so I waited patiently, and I must add nervously, for him to be free. The reward was that he took me out to dinner that evening. Unfortunately, there was no making l'amore that night, which I'd been dreaming of since I'd stupidly said no to his invitation. I feared I'd blown any chance of that. Our story did continue through letters which flew back and forth. I've always loved to write letters, and whereas I've kept many of my love missives through the years, as you've seen so far, for some reason I didn't keep our mottos. But I have the memories. Because his business was international, he came twice to San Francisco, and that is when my wish came true. I finally experienced lovemaking with the handsome wine merchant. Ooh la la is the same in every language. Let me say it again. Ooh la la. Between visits, I was obsessed. I had pictures up on my refrigerator, and all my gal pals knew of my saucy tryst, so they would taunt me like little girls on the playground. Have you heard from Armando? Are you dreaming of Armando? <laughs> Frankly, I was. <laughs> My caper friend, Lynn, reminded me recently of the time we were riding on a ski lift at Squaw Valley in Tahoe, both yelling at the top of our lungs, Armando, where are you? As titillating as this romance had become, it didn't lead to a permanent affair. It was one of those staccato interludes that have become a melodic theme in my life. It enlivened me then, and it does now as I recount it. What's clear is that I'm at my most free, probably my most bewitching, when I'm an Italian soul. 
9,000 miles from the epicenter of false morality and male disillusionment. Why I didn't marry one of these ragazzi, particularly Nicola, remains a bit of a mystery. That is, if I'd been able to get over the baby pasta maker problem. I do know that while in Italy, or in any foreign land really, I didn't feel the need to exert my macho self, the tough girl part of my personality, which signals don't mess with me. It seems this assertive part of my persona, which is a huge asset in the real estate business, but not so good in the love game, actually became attractive rather than intimidating to foreign men. A challenge to be conquered, then relished. Remember, my father, in many ways, had treated me more like a son than a daughter, which no doubt contributed to my domineering tendencies. In a man, such behavior is valued, but in a woman, not so much. My Capricorn son explains the dogged determination to succeed, but there is also a softer side to me, which comes from the sweetness of having a Cancer moon. It's sometimes hard to find that soft side because I often use the tough Michelle for protection, and let's face it, to get my way. However, the right man and the right situation brings out both, thereby helping keep my being in balance. Finding that right guy who appreciates both me's has been a lifelong pursuit which continues to this day. On the way back from meeting Armando, I stopped in New York City where I rendezvoused with my friend Lynn. She and I were always cooking up capers back home, so it made perfect sense to create some in the Big Apple, everyone's trouble central. The first evening, we dined at a trendy spot along the East River. Two Middle Eastern types were ogling the two blondes and eventually made their way to our table and sat down. Sort of ballsy, but effective. Uri, the alpha dude of the duo, had come to the U.S. after winning the World Bodybuilding Championship while still living in his native Baghdad. But he wasn't one of those Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator types. Dark-haired and complexioned, of course, he had a shapely hourglass physique, wide shoulders and slim hips. Nothing like the governator. And definitely another one of those colorful characters who have populated my life. After chatting us up as we ate our dinner, they invited us to go with them to Studio 54, which was the most famous, in fact, infamous nightclub and discotheque in the world at that time, and supposedly impossible to get into. The invite was too tantalizing to ignore. So neglecting all caution, we agreed to go. Uri pulled up his Mercedes to the curb of the restaurant, and we hopped in. Shades of the Sandro scene along the Via Veneto echoed in my mind. Uri skillfully wheeled his way through the busy New York City streets until we arrived at Studio 54. To our astonishment, a valet met the car and we stepped foot on the red carpet that edged up to the curb. Burly bouncers and shiny stanchions lined the entrance where boisterous crowds clamored for entry, 
while we four were escorted right in like royalty. This is when I learned that Uri ran all the high-stakes security for the mafia and other power brokers in the city. No wonder the seas parted for us. That night was a blast. So much frenetic hullabaloo under the laser lights darting about and mirror balls dangling from the high ceilings. Uri didn't drink, but he loved to dance. On one of our forays to the dance floor, wait for it, Gregory Peck, the stunning Hollywood movie star, was bobbing and weaving right next to us. It felt as if I were in a movie myself. As the evening wound down, my escort invited me to join him for dinner the next night. I didn't know what to do after learning of his actual bio. Would I be safe or never seen again? By this time, you know that I'd shed my emotional handcuffs. So with some apprehension, I said yes. I'm sure that my father, Muzzy, would have had a shit fit if he'd known. But I'd ignored him in Italy, and I was doing the same in New York City. He'd molded me into macho girl, after all. I could take care of myself. The next night, I met Uri in the lobby of the hotel where we were staying, and off we sped. I looked back to see Lynn staring down from the window of our room. I'm sure she was wondering if she'd ever see me again. After a lovely dinner, Uri took me back to his small but swank apartment, and we made love. He wasn't a skilled lover, so it felt hurried and not very satisfying sexually. But it does count as a notch on my love belt. <laughs> he was to be my first Middle Eastern lover, but not my last. The next one would prove to be a real corker. But more on that later. Because the Iraqi bodybuilder had wide-ranging business dealings, a year or so after our first encounter, he showed up in San Francisco. We had another night of good food and so-so sex. I remember finding it amusing that he complained that I'd lost too much weight. Never before had I heard that objection. <laughs> Appreciation of women's body types has definite geographical and cultural boundaries. Mine was designed for what is often called the cradle of civilization, not the streamlined tastes of North Americans. Oh, well, I seem to have managed. Uri and I spoke by phone from time to time, but again, this was destined to be a fling, not an ongoing liaison. There is a serendipitous postscript to our tale, however. A few years after our last rendezvous, I enrolled in Werner Erhard's EST training in San Francisco. The infamous Werner himself was doing the training, and it was being broadcast to other venues and shown on giant screens around the country. For those of you too young or too old to remember these cure du jour trainings from the 70s and early 80s, they were the self-help thing to do. You committed to two weekends of intense mind-bending techniques and rigorous rules, such as not wearing watches, 
not talking until called upon, not talking to one's neighbors, not eating, or leaving one's seat to go to the bathroom, except during breaks, which were separated by many hours. One of Earhart's premises was that much of human misery comes from broken agreements, not keeping your word, or someone else not keeping theirs. Another thing the master espoused was that unconditional love was a myth. Here's where it gets interesting. I disagreed with this idea and so challenged him on the point. As was his style, he came right up into my face with his microphone and we argued heatedly. Most people didn't ever challenge him, but here I was on the big screen telling him he was full of bull. <laughs> Very exhilarating. And guess who saw me doing it? Uri in New York. Uh-huh, he later called to congratulate me. You see, we are all connected over time and space. So before I leave today's episode, there is another love bite for me to share with you. Let me tell you about it now. Tagged onto the time I hooked up with Lynn in New York City and met the Iraqi bodybuilder, I'd planned a side trip to Montreal to visit Tony, Lynn's very funny father. We'd met in California, and he sort of had a crush on me. I wasn't planning any kind of sexual dalliance with him, but when I got to his house, he showed me to my bedroom, and immediately my jaw dropped. He'd rigged up about three dozen heavy-duty chains and locks all over the room to show me that he was going to refrain from any inappropriate monkey business. I've always been tickled by this clever gesture. Good going, Tony. Michelle, what a delightful episode. I can't stop laughing. I mean, that last image, I'm sorry. <laughs> With Tony. Oh my gosh, I'll never get over it. Honestly, I mean, who would have thunk? Who would have it was thunk hysterical. I wish I'd taken a picture. Oh my God, I have a mental picture, that's okay. <laughs> okay, good, good. But I have a few questions that'll take you back more to the beginning of this episode, if that's okay with you. You ready? Great. Yep, ready. So you start with the fact that you you had left Drake's house, and what you said that was so striking to me is it never felt like yours. Mm -mm. And then over the years, you transformed this new delightful home into an enchanting place for yourself. And I loved when you said it was your safe haven, your woman cave, your dream, Osile. It, it's just so beautiful. It, it goes back to that part of you that you shared a lot with our listeners last time about your, your love for beauty mm -hmm. and that you could make something fully your own, right? Yeah. I bought this property, which was as I said, on a great lot, but it was a funky little two-bedroom place. And over the years, I remodeled it over and over. And in the end, it was this simply and utterly charming, 
bungalow with everything that was me, me, me. And I created a garden that was a rival to Filoli. It was a mini Filoli, which is a very famous garden in our area in Woodside. So I went from living in Drake's house, which was scruffy, scruffy around the edges, could have been fabulous, but he would never spend spend the money, to creating a home that made my heart go pitter-patter every day that I lived in it. That's lovely. And, you know, then if I'm remembering right, once you felt fully ensconced in that lovely new home, time to go back to guess where? Italy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And tell us a little bit about that love affair and karmic relation you have to Italy. Well, you know, I believe that all of us have geographic karma, actually. In fact, I've had readings by astrologers about my geographic karma. And clearly, Italy is one of those places where I'm. Fam- it's familiar to me. I've been there many times. I, you know, I just feel at home there. And so, you know, here I was licking my wounds after breaking up with Drake and moving into my cute little funky bungalow. And so within like a month or two, I was back in Italy at this villa, which Stanford had uh, rented. And it was quite an intriguing situation. And to make it even more intriguing, when a gentleman who was a baron named Armando entered the scene. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the part I love about this part of your read was that you know, you get into this duel with this other woman who, by the way, you mentioned is married, right? <laughs> right. She was married to the director. She was married, but who cares? And she was like a Balanchine type ballerina, you know, graceful swan, I think is how you called her. And you talk about yourself with your ample curves, divorce wounded, and not totally sure of yourself. But guess who he chooses, right? Right. It was another one of those situations where if I were in competition for a man with a friend and another woman, I always defaulted to thinking the other woman would be the chosen one. It happened to me many times in my life, and you think I would have learned. But anyway, I was happy that it was I that the Baron chose. Oh my God, he was so gorgeous, Sally. <laughs> Honestly, he had blue eyes like Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. And then he's wearing this blue silk shirt. And I mean, when I saw a cat on a hot tub roof for the first time, <laughs> Paul Newman, in that last scene where he throws the pillow on the bed because he's finally going to get it on with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Uh with, you know, Maggie the cat. Oh, my (laughs) God. I I think I was in the sixth grade, and I'm in this dark theater, and this scene (laughs) happens. I I mean, it's the first time I cream my pants. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love that. I just love that you're also so open about telling us the the cringe and your crip and the cream in your pants. It's just, it's just hilarious. But oh God. Cream, in, cream in your pants or not, he actually did choose you and asked you to go with him. And you actually said no. Now, what was going on in your head? Because this is not oh. the Michelle that we typically meet. Well, it, but it is part of me. You know, okay. I've done some pretty, I've been done some pretty silly things. And this was one of those that I would like to do over. I mean, uh-huh. we're walking out of this scene in this beautiful library in this Italian villa. And he whispers in my ear, would you come spend the weekend with me on my sailboat? Well, 
you know, what kind of a dimwit was I? I felt compelled to go with the group to this program they cooked up in Siena. Well, of course, I've already had a scene in Siena, but, but I said no to him. And, but as luck would have it, as fate would have it, there was more to the story. Yeah, and and you tell us more to the story, which, in your words, ooh la la. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, now, the other part that I love in this segment, though, was you speak about it in retrospect, like it was one of those staccato things that, that has become a melody in your life, where it was really enlivening to you then as it is now and as you tell it, and it is for us too, as we hear it, you know. I'm glad. But the part that I love is that you were willing to engage in interludes, even if they were staccato, perhaps. Well, is that so unusual? <laughs> I mean, it's about you. <laughs> not everyone does it, but I'm not criticizing you at all. It's a part I love about you. Well, it was the way my life unfolded. You know, I I did not choose to be in a committed married relationship. I wasn't raising a family. I was kind of a red-hot mama in a way. (laughs) And so, and as I traveled the world, these opportunities presented themselves. And, you know, I didn't always say yes, but the times that I did say yes were very meaningful. And, and not only meaningful, but very memorable. And as as I recount the story about Armando, I, I, it takes me right back there. I can remember all the scenes and, and, you know, how it felt. And it seems like you and Lynn, your friend Lynn, remembered too the moment on the ski lift. What did you, what were you both yelling? <laughs> oh God, well, it was hysterical. So, you know, so I, I didn't, do the deed with Armando in in Florence. But when he came to San Francisco, of course, the first time we consummated the relationship, shall we say. And then he went back home. And then, of course, I couldn't stop talking about this gorgeous Paul Newman character and all my girlfriends. And of course, Lynn at that time and I were very close and shared a lot of things and did a lot of capering. And so we're up at Tahoe and we're skiing and we're on the on the chairlift, and we're both yelling, "Where are you, Armando?" <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really is hilarious. <laughs> so, something else that stood out to me that I'm recalling that that had meaning to me in listening to you today was, I think you started to describe this two very rich sides of you. One is your macho self that I think you said that that tough part of your personality, which says to everyone, don't mess with me. And it's an assertive part of your persona. You also said that something good in business, but not always in the love department. Yet, you also said that when it would leak out of you, is it true that it wasn't so intimidating to foreign men? Well, that's been my experience is that, you know, I really am multifaceted, kind of a dual character in a sense, because I am I am assertive. I always have been. It's how my father raised me, but it's also my nature. And that comes from the Capricorn side, which is very ambitious and determined. And so I exhibited that greatly. But there's also this other part of me, which is the soft side, the sentimental side. I think I said at the very first paragraph of my memoir, It's, you know, I cry at remotely mushy movies. 
And that is the Cancer Moon part of me, which doesn't show up as often as the assertive side. And I use the assertive side, I think, sometimes to protect myself and also to get my way. Yeah, yeah. That was really self-insightful when you said that, that it's not just about protection. It's also to get something that you wanted, you know, good for business, right? <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, so so the whole point of this love search I'm still on, this pursuit, this lifelong pursuit, is finding the right guy who appreciates both parts of me, that isn't intimidated by my strong side and appreciates my soft side. And it's been my experience so far, at least, that European men, foreign men, even some Australian men, as it turns out later on, are not intimidated by the strong Michelle. They like it. It it kind of excites them. They they want to take it on. Whereas most American men that I've met don't appreciate it. They push back. They they want to be the boss. They want to be the center stage player. So it's been a, a bit dicey. I think it's one of the reasons I felt so comfortable in Europe. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But there's something interesting about this segment that you know, I think can speak to younger women today. Also, I guess I should really put it as a question mark for younger women today. But you did say that, you know, that kind of domineering or strong side of you is a behavior that typically is looked up to in men, but not always in women. And I wonder if that, my gut is that some of that still residue holds for today when it comes to romance. I completely, completely believe that. Even as far as women have come, as far as their liberation and their ability to be important in business and to pursue their their career dreams, they still, to this day, come up against that male thing. I mean, look look at Kamala Harris, who's running for vice president right now. You know, strong, capable women have to be even better than the men that they compete against. And this is not something that has completely corrected itself to this day. I, I agree. Or they have to subdue some part of themselves in order to feel accepted in a certain way. Remember the ping pong match with the Biafran? Yeah. <laughs> yes. How could I forget? Yeah. Well, I, I would not submit. And of course, this didn't play well often in the love department. Right. So some of this, as you just said, I think is still true now. But I do believe that when you were in your romance mode in these stories earlier in your life, it was even accepted less, you know, but maybe not as much so in Europe as you discovered. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And if you if recall from the last episode, when I was with Drake, and he was... I subdued myself so much in that relationship. And when I think back on it, you know, it was because I wanted to be with him. And so my dominant self would have torched that relationship. Mm -hmm. But which, honestly, and I'd like to hear from our co-producers who are both younger men at some point, is some things have changed. I mean, there are these sites now where the woman is the one that does the reaching out. And there are certain men that won't join sites that they reach out. I forget what it's called, but I'd be curious to hear the other side because we have an opinion that's still looking back and we're not really taking from the younger folk, especially men. 
So moving forward to the episode that you share with us, Michelle, I love the the story of the world bodybuilder. Oh my God, Uri, what what a crazy story. And I love that you admitted that you were neglecting all caution when you agreed to go with him. <laughs> what were you picking up on that was a little bit scary at first? Because you hadn't learned yet that he did security for the mafia. So what was it? What was scary about him? Well, you know, he was the world champion bodybuilder. I mean, he was a powerful he was a powerful guy. And he was clearly confident. You know, I mean, he walked over, sat down at our table as if he owned the place. And, you know, and he was swarthy looking. He was not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He wasn't that big and bulked out, but he was swarthy. He was powerful. Clearly, the minute we drove up to Studio 54 and the the seas parted, I knew he was really powerful. You know, and then I find out he runs security for the mafia and all the power brokers in the city of, of New York. And I, you know, clearly there were some red flags there. As wild and woolly as I could be, that that was a little bit daunting. Yeah, you did go for it. And then you have this memory of your father being mad at you. Oh, my God. You know, the, but you... Even though your father's voice was inside you, you were going to go for it. You could take for yourself. <laughs> well, remember back in, in Sicily when my father wrote the letter that said, leave Sicily immediately? Right. And I basically said, are you kidding? I, I, it was the same thing. My father was speaking inside my head and saying, don't you dare go with this guy. And I just overwrote it. <laughs> and the other part of the story that kind of cracked me up a little bit was the expectation of this big bodybuilder being like amazing in bed. And it was, in your terms, so, so sex. And yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like men say that about models often, too, that don't enjoy themselves as fully as maybe a less skinny, self-conscious body type would. Because <laughs> So it's just interesting because the stereotype went the opposite way. It just cracked me up. Let me just say a little bit about that. So, you know, I think we all make mistakes thinking that if somebody's beautiful, that they're going to be a good lover. Well, that's not true. You know, it's it's more about their sensibility, not how they what they look like. It's how much do they want to please the woman? How much do they enjoy the the whole you know, foreplay and the prop. The giving of pleasure. Yeah, the giving of pleasure, the receiving of pleasure. It's, you know, and I don't, let me just say this. The majority of men are not good lovers. They don't get it. So Uri just fell in that camp. You know, he, he just wasn't, yeah, being the power broker was more important to him than being the lover. But yet it was, as you said, a, a wonderful notch in your love belt, nonetheless. <laughs> And then the other part that stuck out is he comes to see you in San Francisco and he complained that you had lost too much weight, right? Oh, God, that was some, that was something else. And it was the beginning of my awareness that there is geography comes into play with body types. You know, in North America, for the most part, the, the gold standard body type is tall, lithe, blonde. Well, in the Middle East, and I can attest to this with upcoming stories, which you'll have to wait for, <laughs> but the Middle East, the gold standard is zoftic, something, you know, meat on the bone, something you can hold on to. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, yeah, that's it. So he was my first Middle Eastern lover. 
not my last. And that part of the world loves a round, soft, delicious woman like me. Right. But what really hit me about this is you, even to the day that you met him, held this image of your body as maybe not as desirable. And here, so you're trying to lose weight, right? To fit into whatever you think is the right way to be in this country. And he's complaining about it. Right. <laughs> I know. It was it was priceless. It was priceless. I remember the dress I was wearing when he said that. I remember that whole scene very clearly. It was so unusual. I mean, here I was, he had come to San Francisco and we were having going to have dinner and I was going to spend the night with him. And the first time he saw me, I'm wearing this green wool frock, which buttoned down the back and it fit on the hips. It was a pretty dress. And he looked at me and said, oh, you've lost so much weight. <laughs> and I, of course, was like stupefied. Anyway. Anyway, on to the est part of the story, which, which really hit a chord in me because I was one of those in the 70s and 80s that was pulled into one of those SMRs. So, so it felt familiar. But not only do you get in the face of the master and have a, a duel with him that's programmed across the, the large screens, but it was interesting to me what you were arguing with him about. So I believe it was... He's saying that unconditional love was a myth, right? And you clearly disagreed with him. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, in this book, Love Capades, I'm not talking just about sexual encounters and escapades. I'm talking about all forms of love. And I had become, at a certain point, which is to be revealed, I had become a strong Christian. And I believed the gospel, and I believed that there is such a thing as unconditional love. And it, it doesn't usually play itself out in men-women relationships. It's a more spiritual kind of love. But I knew it to be possible. And so when he just emphatically said that it's a myth, I took exception to it. And as is my way, I, I often try to change people's minds. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't going for it. So here we had this heated conversation, which was being broadcast all over the country. <laughs> and I basically told him he was full of shit. And I loved every minute of it. Right. I love how exhilarating it felt to you. I mean, it's really hilarious to, to, to picture you doing that. It's exhilarating to hear. And guess who saw it from New York? Uri. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Bodybuilder. And then he called me to say, good for you. <laughs> he was not intimidated by that side of you at all. Well, no, he wasn't. You see, he was not from the United States of America. He was from Baghdad. And he liked the fact that I was strong. Oh, he also liked that I was softer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the poignant part is that even though he was far away and your dalliance had ended, that you're still connected over time and space was lovely. Well, let me just say this. You know, this this is a memoir about my experiences of love. And even though some of the relationships I had were very short-lived, they still exist. We are still connected. And I could go as far as to say that I believe in karma. And every person you encounter in your life, you've encountered in other lifetimes. And that's 
something we'll get into later. But we're no matter how long or short a relationship is, and no matter how long a time it's been, you're still connected at the spirit, the heart, the soul level. And in your love bite that you shared, there was <laughs> certainly a connection to Lynn's dad, but didn't go all the way. Remind, I mean, that that image just cracks me up. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was one of the funniest things that's ever <laughs> happened as far as man and woman. I mean, I was going to visit Tony because he had met me in California and he, he was a fun, fun-loving guy, very charming, very charismatic. He was a womanizer, but in the in the nicest sense of the word. And he had invited me to visit him in Montreal, and I'd never been to Montreal. And so, again, I went for the adventure of it. Lynn knew I was going. And so I show up at his house, which is an attractive house, two-story house, and he shows me to the guest bedroom, and it was slain, <laughs> strewn with all these chains and locks. And oh my God, I don't know where he found them all. And I, I the point was, he wasn't going to do anything sadistic. That was not the point. The point was, he was saying, don't worry, I'm not going to mess with you. Right. Not sadistic, just nothing. <laughs> well, he it was so symbolic and so playful and so funny. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Yeah, it's it a very funny, funny love bite. But just to, to wrap up this episode, I was really touched by what you called it because it really stands out. So you called it Sowing the Oats of Freedom. And this episode unfolded right after the, the deepest heartbreak of the last episode with with your marriage to Drake and the loss of the marriage to Drake. And sowing the oats of freedom, I mean, it's your comeback. It's like, you know, I'm not going to let this bring me down. And even though some of these, you know, dalliances, as you sometimes call them, may have been staccato points in your life and not long-term themes, we're enjoying your freedom again. And, and of course, can't wait to hear more. Well, there are more to come. And it really was like a liberation. I left Drake after six years of trying to make it work. And I was my own self again. I could make my own choices. I could choose when to spend money, when to save money. I could choose who to love, when to love. It was, it was fabulous. So I think we can end on that. It was fabulous with much more to come. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Sally. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com. <laughs>